This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long. And my name is Danielle King. Very good. <laughs> this is an impromptu, unexpected recording because one of my guests canceled, which means I have no episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing to edit for this week's show. So here we are. I've grabbed my sometimes Sacred Tension co-host and fabulous roommate, Danielle. We, we are coming off of the marathon three-week coming out series with Timothy, which was really beautiful and really powerful and also really heavy. And if you haven't checked it out, please go do that now. It'll probably be way more profound than this one. Real time. I've listened to the first two and I can't wait to listen to the third. So <laughs> Yes, I'm, I'm in the middle of editing the third. <laughs> so we're just going to do something kind of laid back and fun. And then we will, I will be back to interviewing, you know, queers and Satanists next, next week. Also, just a little heads up, there is construction going on outside, and I do not have a professional studio. We live in a rickety old mountain house, so we've like put mattresses in the windows. <laughs> He's not even kidding. I'm not even kidding. We put mattresses in the windows to try to get the sound out. So if you hear trucks and bulldozers, I'm sorry. Go donate to my patron. Also, there's a cat in here. There's also which a has cat. nothing to do with Patreon. <laughs> it's just and so if you hear <sighs> if you hear rustling or meowing or banging, that it's <laughs> not a poltergeist. No, it's the cat. All right, we think all of this is it, all of this is is wonderful advertisement for my Patreon, which you can go to at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long, where you can give me money so that I can eventually have a real studio. All right, so here's what we're going to do. Danielle and I just have some really basic questions for each other. We do not know what these questions are. We're going to ask each other these questions. You know, it's pretty hard for us to not know something about each other, but maybe maybe we'll ask a question that you don't know about us. You know, we met in what? Fall of 2002? Two? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's Fall ridiculous. Of 2002 at Asheville Christian Academy and <sighs> You were That's, I should say a lot. Anyway. You were the you were the lap dog of the teachers. Hey, I was I was a good student and quiet. And which I means... was not. Which means that you were the lap dog. <laughs> which means they liked me, yes. <laughs> and I was not the lap dog. Yeah, well. But anyway. Anyway. <laughs> All right. So Danielle, do you want to ask the first question? Well well sure. Less a question, more a request. Mm. So I really wish sometimes that this were a visual medium because quite frankly, Stephen, your and John's style is astonishing. Could you could you put a name to that <laughs> style and describe some salient objects in the room oh, that would that would let your listeners sort of sort of in on what I'm experiencing right now? Okay, well, so oh. we have uh, behind Danielle, we have a dresser that is full of old horror books and psychoanalysis. Also sharing that dresser are a bunch of taxidermied insects, mm -hmm. a giant tarantula, a bunch of large beetles. We have a bat skeleton. We have a taxidermied octopus. We have a statue of Kali and a statue of Baphomet from the mm -hmm. Satanic mm -hmm. Temple. We have a bunch of fossils. Let's see. We have a uh, a gigantic, gorgeous painting of Eve. It really is gorgeous. Of Eve in the garden. John got it, and I don't actually know what. Well, it's by Henri. What is it? 
Giulietti Rousseau, yes, uh, from the early 1900s. And uh, it's technically called Snake Charmer, but of course it looks very Edenic with this woman yes. with a snake around yeah. her neck I, and she's naked. And I, I see it uh-huh. as as, uh, as Eve, in the garden. Eve in the garden and she's surrounded mm-hmm. by snakes. We Makes have a sense. baby doll head nightlight. <laughs> yes, you do. We have Voodoo Mary. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, John got this gorgeous Haitian voodoo statue of of Mary. Mary. Of yeah. Mary. We also have the Amitabha Buddha. We have lots of occult books. Yeah. <laughs> we, let's see, we have an Ouija board over the bed. Mm-hmm. It's an exciting, it's an but exciting But my favorite place. parts, my favorite parts are the grandma touches. They have like a stained glass shaded lamp and a needlepoint <laughs> ottoman. And, you know, just these little, <laughs> these little touches of Victoriana that delight my soul when mixed with all of this occult. Kind of the look we're trying to go for is like Victorian era psychic parlor. Yeah, like, yeah, that's like accurate. Spiritualism, <laughs> like Madame, what's her face? Madame Blavatsky. 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 Yeah. That's kind of the look we're going for. Yeah. Is old world spiritualism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd say we're there. Okay. I'd say we're getting there anyway. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, whenever I bring guests into this room, they're like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> they're like, I thought I thought this was a Christian podcast. It, it doesn't hurt that we, you know, as Stephen said, live in a rickety old house with, like, cobwebs and things. I call it the cobweb mansion. Yeah. Cobweb palace. All right. Well, so then I will ask the next question. Please do. So, Danielle, Mm. who is your favorite Catholic saint? Oh, crap. Oh, who am I kidding? And actually, I don't know if she's canonized or simply blessed, but it's got to be Hildegard. She is actually canonized Okay, okay, yeah, Yeah. no. Then definitely Hildegard von Bingen. She was blessed, and and she's also a doctor of the church, but now she's she was canonized canonized. recently, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's definitely Hildy. Yeah, me too. Hildegard von Bingen. Hildegard, for listeners who don't know, she was an early mystic, an Mm -hmm. early feminist, Mm -hmm. an early pioneer in contraception. She lived in medieval Germany. She She, was an abbess. She was an Um, abbess. She, mm -hmm. She stood up against a lot of the tyranny of the Catholic Church. Yeah. She was an herbalist. She was mm-hmm. a musician. If you go look up some of her music, it is absolutely oh, amazing. extraordinary and oh ahead of goodness. her time. She was also, fun fact, so at that time, here's just some music trivia, at that time, there was a trend of anonymity when it came to composing music. Uh, she was the first in Western music to put her name to her music. Good for her. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, no, she's extraordinary. She She's a great artist, musician. She did morality plays just mm-hmm. and one of the most extraordinary women in history. So yep. I have to agree. Like as, <laughs> as I was Hildy, yeah, <laughs> Hildy. Uh-huh. As I was, I was going to take her. I was going to take Hildegard as my um, patron saint. If you had finished the as conversion my, process. as my name yeah. saint, as, yeah. if I was going to finish the conversion mm-hmm. process. Yeah. yeah, all right. I should have. I I didn't, but I, I who, thought about it. Who did you take as your name saint? Elizabeth Ann Seton. She's awesome. She's pretty cool. She's a bam. She is. It's true. Far more, I suppose, conventional than Hildegard von Bingen, but also an awesome woman in church history and in history in general. Absolutely. She was a widow from, I want to say Baltimore. Anyway, she had been raised Anglican, converted to Catholicism after her husband died, became a religious, and then began an order of teaching nuns. So yeah, education, y'all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A pioneer in education. 
Yep. Well, that's your Catholic. <laughs> that's our Catholic saints lesson for the day. <laughs> that is your <laughs> Catholic lesson. We are both still very Catholic. Yeah. You know, yeah. I feel like Catholic is still one of those facets that's still very much a part of me. Yeah, I think I, th- I think for me too. It's it's still there. Maybe I I think it's smaller than for you mm. because you were just in it longer. Yeah, I was. But it's still mm-hmm. like a part of me. Also, I still <laughs> go to an Anglo-Catholic church. And I go to an so. Episcopal church. I mean, technically, the one I go to is Episcopal, but, but liturgically. Yours, but yours, liturgically, mine yeah. is not liturgically Anglo-Catholic. <laughs> Let's but. put it this way. We say the Angelus after every Sunday service. Like, <laughs> yeah. Very good. <laughs> What's your next question? So my next question is, if you had to pick somebody who was most influential in your affirmation process, I don't know if you want, if you know what I mean by that. But like Catholic affirmation. No, oh. no. Um, coming to affirm your sexuality. Oh. Yeah. Oh, got it. Who okay. and why? Okay. I would have to say that the most influential person for me in coming to accept my sexual orientation was Dr. James Brownson. Okay. And of course, there are a lot of really, really close runner-ups. Mm-hmm. You know, Justin Lee. Peter Enns comes to Peter mind. Peter Enns. Yeah. Uh, who wrote a letter to my congregation? Oh, crap. Uh, Ken Wilson. Yeah. Ken Wilson. Wendy Gritter. Wendy Gritter. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, 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 people like that. People yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> there are, I mean... So many. Warren Throckmorton. There are a ton of really, really great people who I can recommend who really helped me come. David Gushy is another great one who helped me come to an affirming position. But I think the one who really pushed me, who was able to really walk me through it step by step was... Dr. James Brownson and his book, Bible, Gender, Sexuality. So Mm. remember, this was when I was still kind of conservative. Oh, I know. Theologically. I I remember. (laughs) Yeah. So so I was still conservative theologically. And I had, you know, what Protestants call a high view of scripture, which means it is the word of God. It is the... Infallible. You read it literally. I didn't. I don't. Well, I didn't read it literally. But I was definitely prima scriptura. Yeah. I was definitely prima scriptura. And I was, which means scripture first. For me and for a lot of people... There's this dissonance between the life we feel like we are able to live, want to live, want to embrace, be that for straight Christians wanting to embrace their gay friends, or for gay people who want to affirm their own, who want to affirm Mm -hmm. their own orientation. But the problem is, it's their theology that's holding them back. It is their intellectual scaffolding that's Mm. holding them back. And so what often needs to take place is not a conversion of heart. For me, I was already there, you know, for some people, it does need it, you know, like Michael Corrin, I did an interview with Michael Corrin uh, several years ago. And he was a conservative commentator in, in Canada, very, very famous. And then he had a change of heart yeah and it was first and foremost a change of heart the way he describes it but for me i feel like i already had that change of heart and what needed to happen was a breaking down of the scaffolding Mm -hmm. that was holding me hostage to conservative ideology to these traditional systems you know i sometimes feel like people don't appreciate that enough how so? I feel like we live in a culture that just assumes, well, just get over it. Yeah. You know, just get over your religiosity mm-hmm. or just get over your traditional conservative beliefs. Which just... to some degree is almost as silly as telling somebody to choose not to be gay. Yes, like this is. is this has been ingrained in me since I me was too. born, even and, before. Yeah. And so I'm often frustrated with how 
people handle religiosity and handle ideology where the ad i feel like the prevailing attitude and this is just me maybe i'm completely wrong but i feel like the prevailing attitude is we'll just fucking get over it yeah Why, can't you see <laughs> can't you see that this is the morally yeah. superior path and the problem is sometimes people can see that but they can't reconcile that yeah. You know? With the theological and even intellectual systems, philosophical, emotional, that they've built up exactly. for themselves for, you know, exactly. since they were tiny children. And yeah. the result is cognitive dissonance. Oh, it hurts so hard. It hurts anyway. so hard. And so really what I needed was someone like Dr. James Brownson to walk me through step by step why I can affirm my sexuality. And and it's a brilliant, brilliant book and I recommend everyone read it because it it's, I think, the bar for affirming theology. He himself, I wouldn't say he has what Protestants or what, what very conservative Protestants would call a high view of scripture, but at the same time, he walks you through sort of the theological steps using scripture in a way yes. that definitely also drew me in and made me go, huh. Me too. He, he completely, ra and mm -hmm. and through a respect for scripture, he reframed it yeah. in, in a way that yeah. was just extraordinary. Kind of the underpinning idea of Bible gender sexuality is what he calls moral logic. And what is the moral logic of these certain passages and these overarching themes of scripture? And so based, you know, he uses the example of it's in one of Paul's letters where he says greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay, well what's the moral logic behind that? Is the moral <laughs> Do we take that literally and do all we, kiss each other? Do <laughs> we take do we take that literally and all kiss each other even though there are some cultures that just don't do that or mm -hmm. do we take the do we draw from that the moral logic which is yeah. greet one in another some places, warmly? Would you and, greet each other with a holy handshake and, and like lovingly? On, yeah, yeah. Yeah, greet each other mm -hmm. warmly and lovingly and that's the moral logic. So he applies that concept of moral logic that transcends culture and time mm. and assumption mm -hmm. to our modern day and it's really really brilliant yeah yeah, yeah no it's a it's a gorgeous book i've also read it but, it is mm -hmm. it's a masterpiece okay. okay well now that we've stopped gushing over now that we've <laughs> over brownson now that we're done gushing <sighs> over brownson okay mm -hmm. will i ever be done it's your turn oh is it my turn yeah i oh. just asked a question oh okay awesome <laughs> i'm looking at you expectantly <laughs> All right, here's one. What in your evangelical background are you still recovering from? Oh, crap. <laughs> For me, it's difficult to separate sort of influences and things that were not strictly evangelical from my evangelical upbringing simply because I experienced it all as a whole. And I feel like evangelicalism sort of permeated just everything about the culture that I was raised in. But I think... Hmm. I think the biggest thing for me is uh, shame-based fear. Mm. Yeah. And I, I feel like it's, it's almost an analogous experience. And I'm not going to say it was as severe, but it, it was almost an analogous experience growing up a quiet, bookish, overweight girl in modern American evangelical culture. In some ways, I feel like I experienced a taste of what it must be like to grow up queer in that kind of community. Absolutely. I felt like as much as people praised the fact that I knew a lot of things about a lot of things, I always, and whether this is accurate or not, although I don't know why I would have felt this if it wasn't true, I felt like there was maybe an undercurrent of uncomfortableness 
mm. with just who I was. This very articulate, as I say, bookish, you know. You were incredibly articulate. Thank you. And um, and I think And you still are. Thank you so much. Yeah. But I think as a, as a kid that sometimes made people uncomfortable in a culture where I was overweight and female and both of those things were considered less than. Mm. Not necessarily evil or bad, but definitely not as good as. Male was best, thin was best. And so if you were going to have a voice, and if you were going to, you know, operate in the world as, let's say, a leader, then you had better be at least one of, if not both of those things, if that makes sense. Oh gosh, even now, I feel ashamed saying this, but I feel like I had leadership potential that was neglected because people didn't see me as the kind of person who they wanted to foster leadership. I 100% agree with that. Uh, because I'm not an extrovert, because I'm not an a athlete. conventionally attractive. Yeah, an athlete. Because I'm not male. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think I internalized a lot of that. Mm. And uh, so I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of fear and a lot of shame, and I'm working through it. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible how these things follow us, <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, you know, I've interviewed a lot of ex-evangelicals or. <laughs> Just people working through mm. their evangelical past. You know, most recently is Timothy over the past few weeks talking about how, you know, he's been in the closet for 58 years and now he's coming out at the age of 58 yeah. and has and he's lived in the evangelical world that entire time. And, you know, there's this crazy kind of Stockholm syndrome that we all have, <laughs> I yeah. feel like, with our evangelical upbringing where it's like we really love it. We really hate it. It's complicated. We appreciate it. We loathe it. Mm -hmm. We rage at it. We are thankful <laughs> for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's it's so, so complicated. It's so complicated. So multifaceted. Yeah. And, you know, just as you were talking about that, something came to mind that I've been thinking about quite a bit as a queer person is I think one thing that really hurt... I mean, what, what didn't hurt? You know, yeah, it is right. one of the other many things that hurt mm -hmm. was this idea that Jesus became this gaslighter. And what I mean by that is that, you know, it's like, and I'm, and I'm speaking really kind of figuratively here where it, it's like we're told queer people in the church, or at least where I was in the church, were told your sin is no worse yeah. than any other sin. Mm -hmm. And then they proceed to treat you just as if that's the case. Yeah. You know what I mean? Your sin is no worse than any other sin and they insist on it and they insist on it and they insist on it and they demand that you see it that way too. But then they treat you the exact opposite as if your sin is worse. And it makes you feel like you're going insane. It's like classic gaslighting. This notion that Jesus loves you unconditionally and then they treat you Hmm. The exact opposite. So that's not true at all. That's yeah. not true at all. Uh -huh. You know, and, and you know, I don't feel like the church ha gets the out of saying we're the body of Christ, but when we don't reflect him well, we're going to distance ourselves from him and say, oh, no, we're imperfect. Um, I think you need to do a bit better than that. <laughs> if you're going to be the body of Christ, at least try. <laughs> you, like, can, can we move past that, maybe? You, yeah. you see what I'm saying? Well, and it's funny... Because to people yeah. like me, to to the world, and to kids being raised in the church, the body is Christ. It's all they can see. Yeah. That's all they can see. Like there's a experience. reason. There's a reason the church is called the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. It's because 
that's how we see Christ. And so if you're fucking up, if if the church is a monster, Christ is going to become a monster to us. Hmm. That's just the way it is. And we don't get the theoretical dodge of saying, well, the church is imperfect and you still have to... Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. We don't get that dodge. We just have to say we're the body of Christ, we're going to do better, and we failed. That's the only thing that's acceptable there. Mm -hmm. Anyway. And it's so funny because I interact with evangelicals now who are still, you know, very much a part of the community and still accept all the theology and still, you know, are in it, in that world. And quite frankly... There are certain things and certain situations and even certain words that trigger these instantaneous, really sharp, kind of startling reactions of fear, shame, and anger. Yeah, me too. Those those are the things, honestly, those are the things that I see. And maybe it's because I've, you know, I've been there. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But it's just, it's so fascinating to me. I don't, I sometimes see joy or peace or love but i don't know it's it's all sort of it can all sort of crack in an instant yes just because of some you know because yeah no seriously because of a word yeah i don't know i think part of my heart in all this is i want to see people have life and that more abundantly and have more more joy love hope and peace like i want to see people i want to see people be at peace and live fully and there's something so confining and brittle yes and i just know how painful that sense of brittleness that you know if you look in the wrong direction if you talk to the wrong people then suddenly your entire world's going to shatter you know what i mean that sense of that that sense of fragility and fear that you know this glass castle that is your evangelical world can just so easily be shattered and if we're constantly having to protect it from shattering we're not living a full life we're not living an interconnected deep mm-hmm. messy joy- messy uncertain joyful life. Yeah, human life that's exactly. that's the thing like and that's the other thing is that i feel like i was taught to be afraid of mess and uncertainty yeah and quite frankly apart from death and taxes those are the two things we're going to have like those those <laughs> yes. are the human things those are the we will human be things. messy and we will be uncertain and that's that's just how it goes. And that's great. Yeah. And I mean, kind of what I've learned is that it's possible to still have a semblance of Christianity in your life with mm. those things. Oh, absolutely. You know? and, and I know that I have arrived at a place that a lot of people find uncomfortable. But okay. the fact is, I still consider myself a Christian, maybe a queer, satanic one. But I, <laughs> I still consider myself a Christian and I still consider myself within the stream of these symbols and profoundly powerful images. Mm. There's nothing I love more than scripture. Yeah. You know, there's nothing I'm, I love more than the Bible. There's nothing I love more than the person of Christ, mm-hmm. than the image of Christ. And I've, did, and I've realized I can have all that oh, yeah. while still being the hopeful materialist mm-hmm. that I am who still believes in the supernatural late at night when I'm falling asleep. You know what I mean? You know, it's like, I don't think that there will ever be a part of me that doesn't believe in the supernatural. Mm -hmm. I don't think that will, I don't think I have it in me to not believe in that. But I also don't have it in me to not be a skeptic, to not, 
be uncomfortable. To not say, I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I've discovered that I can have all of that while still calling myself a Christian, and that's okay. Yeah. Next question. Yeah, next question. Um, You asked the last one, yes? Yes, that's right. Ha, ha, ha. You said I could ask anything. <laughs> all right. That's true. <laughs> Steven, you recently had a birthday. How are you feeling about being 30? Oh, my God. Uh, well... <laughs> I'm afraid that gay menopause is going to be setting on oh, any no. <laughs> time now. <laughs> it actually feels really good because my teens and 20s were a hot fucking mess. I can attest to that. Yeah, my teens and <laughs> my teens and 20s were just a complete nightmare. I feel like over the past 3 year, 4 years, 3 4 years, I have kind of started to get my shit together. Yeah. You know? Yeah. John's really helped because John mm-hmm. and I met in 2000 and fall of 2014 and he was a really stabilizing force for me. I feel like a lot of stuff that I think normal people learn in like school and college, like how to how to <laughs> be an adult or like yeah. how to get up in the morning. No, not everyone. No, but... <laughs> not everyone. Um, but like how to, <sighs> I don't know, just how to be a sane state. And I do mean sane, sane. I do mean sane. I mean yeah. sane literally. Yeah. How to be a sane, stable, functional human being. I feel like I just needed a bit longer. I just needed a minute. <laughs> it's just, okay. I just needed, just a, needed minute a minute to figure that shit out. Because, I mean, seriously, I had a lot working against me. Like, a lot working against me. I'm really, really learning disabled, which I've discovered for me doesn't mean anything outside of school. I do yeah, great. You out- do fine. I do great outside school. of school, but in school oh. I really really suffer. Mm-hmm. Like I'm I'm not a good student and I no matter how hard I try, it just it didn't work. And so there was that, but then also just, you know, growing up in a conservative setting, being queer, going through a shooting when I was 19 years old and living with the PTSD from that, going to a small Christian mountain college and being being a pariah a pariah mm-hmm. there being gay there try i mean there was a lot there was a, a lot, lot. Happening. yeah <laughs> mental health issues i mean there was a lot and so i'm actually really hopeful about turning 30 or i just turned 30 i'm really mm-hmm. hopeful about my 30s because yeah. i'm feeling like things are better and like things are more stable well, and I think to some degree, and there may be a few factors in my life that have caused this to be true as well, I think to some degree, your rocky start caused you to work through some things that other people maybe don't have to face up to until they're like 50. And if I yeah. and if it's up to me, I'd rather get them out of the way sooner. Yeah. Like, I'd rather it's... get them out of the way, you know, earlier because, you know, I have to. Oh my God. Um, yes, me too. You then, know... you know, have a midlife crisis and fall apart at, at 60. J.K. Rowling has a fantastic... A speech at a college for graduation Commence- commencement there you go commencement speech <laughs> a commencement speech where and it was to harvard or some ivy league school and it's about the benefits of failure nice and how failure is our greatest teacher yeah and you know i feel like through most of my teens and 20s i had the most brutal brutal you had an education in failure i had yeah. the most fucking brutal education in failure and uh it's now serving me pretty well Yep. Yeah. There you I, go. I feel like I've learned how to survive mm-hmm. pretty efficiently. Um, also, I found a sugar daddy. That's <laughs> That was part of the plan all along. Oh, my goodness. Find, find someone who is more stable than you, <laughs> who makes more than you. Oh, my gosh. And then maybe someday I can fulfill my dream of being a gay housewife. That's hilarious. Which I'm not. I'm not a gay housewife. No. But maybe someday I will well, be. Maybe someday. Right now, I'm uh, I'm working three jobs. 
Yeah. I yeah. do I do the podcast, I do the website, I teach yoga, and I am an assistant manager at a locally owned kind of uh organic family business, family business grocery organic store. grocery yeah. store mm-hmm. cafe. So a, one, yes, I am a Portlandia sketch. Yes. I'm a gay yoga teacher who manages an organic, locally owned grocery store. And I work about 40 to 60 hours a week. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I'm yeah. working to death. So, but I love working to death. Yeah. So, so there you go. So there we go. All right. You technically get one more if that's the format we're going with. Yeah. Let's see here. What would make you lose faith in God? Oh my. Going for the hard-hitting one last, Stephen. All right. Is this last is this the last question? I mean, it, I don't know. If we each get 3, then yeah. Oh, but well, I have I have You have more. I have more questions. Oh boy. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, I did say three last night, didn't I? I mean, there can be three more. To five. I don't care. Okay. Oh gosh, what would make me lose faith in God at this point? Having had my expectations and trust and heart broken over and over and over again by people and institutions who claimed to represent God and simply by tragedies in the world and having faced those and cried about them and ranted about them and raged about them and lived with them, sat with them. I can't say that there's nothing that would make me lose my faith in God, but I think because my faith in God isn't predicated on, you know, good things happening to good people or institutions that claim to res- to represent God behaving as though they do mm-hmm. or tragedies not occurring in the world, even very horrific ones. Mm. At this point, I feel like that faith is so organic and flexible and alive and has survived this long. I mean, I haven't experienced a lot of personal tragedy, so I can't speak to, you know, what if, God forbid, you know, my my husband who I've been married to for about a year were to suddenly die. I can't say that that wouldn't you know that that might not do it but like you've been you've been I feel bitten like I've by... been yeah I feel like I've been I've I've tested this yeah. I've I've really tested this and again that <clears throat> whole idea of of facing facing the uncertainty and looking it in the face and sitting with it yeah and not avoiding it and it, realizing that the only way out is through that strengthens faith yeah yeah it no does. like yeah, seriously too. I think I used to think my you know faith was like a structure like a house and then I found out that no, faith is like the jungle that comes and eats the, like, the vines that grow up through it and the trees yes. and the roots and the leaves and the everything. It's living. It's, it's living. a forest. It's and a... it grows and it changes. Exactly. And it goes through seasons. And I think having learned that, I'm not sure there's anything that will kill it. Yeah, me too. You know, I, I don't know. I feel like... Faith is a hard word for me because I feel like where my Christianity is isn't just such a weird, abstract, non-theistic, which is different from atheistic. Mm -hmm. I feel like the way I put it is that I've been bitten by the faith super bug. And it's like, no matter what I throw at it. No matter what I throw at it, it's still there. (laughs) No matter matter how many books by Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins I throw at it, it'll just mutate. Yeah. You know, like a a virus. Like Like, a flesh-eating bacteria. Like like a flesh-eating bacteria. 
going to get me somehow, it, one it's way gonna, or the other. Exactly. Yeah. It'll just mutate to accommodate it. Mm-hmm. Now, it, now my faith has mutated to the point of being unrecognizable to what it was five years ago. And I think mm-hmm. that's good. Okay, so I'm an open materialist, meaning... I'm a materialist who believes that there's probably just the spiritual or just the material world, but I hope deeply for the supernatural world. I hope deeply that God is my savior. I hope deeply that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. I hope dearly for all those things. The sort of faith that I can relate with is what is defined in in, uh, Hebrews. Faith is the essence of things hoped hoped for. for. I can 100% get behind that kind of faith. And for me, there's a difference between what I hope for and what we know. Yeah. And what we know is the magisterium of science, what's mm-hmm. revealed to us, and then beyond re- what's revealed to us through the revelation of science. But then beyond that, we can just be comfortable with agnosticism, and we can hope. And yet, in spite of that, I still speak in tongues. Yeah. Spontaneously. Mm-hmm. I still pray from you the book. You still pray. I still yep. pray from the Book of Common Prayer. Read scripture. I still read scripture. Mm-hmm. I still, I haven't been able to go to church as much lately because of work, but I'm, I'm still involved in, in a local, a local church, church. In, a, yeah. in an Episcopal mm-hmm. church. All of that while saying, you know what? I don't know if there is a God. And honestly, at this point, I'm okay if there isn't. Because mm-hmm. no matter what I think about the universe, the universe is still huge and mysterious and wonderful no matter what I think about it. Basically. And it's okay. And I yeah. can trust that fact. Yeah, You know, I can be okay with it. And yet I'm still going to live with the I'm I'm still going to live as if mm-hmm. the, there is a God, even though I don't <laughs> know there it? is one. What was it? The oh no! Now I'm going to get all C.S. Lewis on everybody. And guys, <laughs> guys, if there is someone who is actually my patron saint, it's C.S. <laughs> it's Lewis C.S. or G.K. So, Chesterton or G.K. But probably C.S. Lewis. Probably Lewis. Let's um, be honest. And so there's this there's this scene in the silver chair where they're down in the underground kingdom of the Snake Queen. And it's two, you know, children from England, from the from this world, and a creature from Narnia called a Marshwiggle. And they're there to <laughs> rescue Prince Rillian of Narnia. And uh, the witch has come back and surprised them after they freed the prince from enchantment. Mm-hmm. And she's pissed as hell. <laughs> and she, like, throws a powder on the fire and starts playing a harp to make them all drowsy. And she tries to hypnotize them. And basically her, her thing is, there is no above ground world. This underground world that I've created is the only world there is. Yeah. What is the sun but a larger lamp? And what is, you know, this lion? Because in, in this world, Aslan, the lion, is a is a figure of Christ for, yeah. for Lewis. You know, what is the lion but a larger version of this cat here? And, you know, why, mm-hmm. why do you, what are you talking about? There never was a land on the surface? What are you talking? And, um, you know, what are stars and all this? And the Marshwiggle basically says, well, madam, maybe that's true. Maybe you've swallowed the overworld and made it as black and joyless as this place. But if that's true, then three children play acting, which is something she'd thrown at them, can make a pretend world to lick your real world hollow. And maybe there isn't any Narnia, but I'm going to live like a Narnian anyway. Exactly. And he gives this whole stirring speech. And exactly. I'm like, yeah, right there. That's it. Right there. Maybe there isn't. Maybe but I'm going to live like there and, is. And you know, yeah. I, I know I say this on so many podcasts, people are sick of it. And you know, whenever I'm interviewed on other shows with people in the process of deconstructing their faith, I always bring up that quote from the end of Harry Potter, 
mm. which is oh yeah um, Dumbledore when, at King's at the you know you know yeah the, the afterlife King's the, Cross the, Station. the vision the vision at King's Cross mm-hmm. and Harry's having a final conversation with Dumbledore and at the very end of the conversation Harry looks at Dumbledore and says is this all in my head and Dumbledore says of course it's all in your head Harry why does that mean it isn't real yeah that to me speaks to the power of faith speaks mm-hmm. to the power of the share what what Joseph Laycock who's a guest on this show calls paracosms mm. and a paracosm is a shared world and he says it isn't not real it's an annex to reality and it fundamentally changes us and shapes how we live we we have to stop seeing this division between mind and material as real and unreal it's, hmm. all, real. it's all real it's all real but maybe in a different sense mm-hmm. it's all lived experience maybe just in a different way yeah and also you know Along these lines, I did a whole, you know, two-parter episode with Matt Langston on the axioms of Science Mike, which kind of cover this. Like, how yeah. how do we hold on to, if you're a skeptical person who still deeply values your faith, how do you reconcile the two? How do you reconcile modern science with ancient religion? Well, I think Science Mike has the best criteria for that so far i think he has the bet because basically what he comes up with is the set of axioms which is like here is the very baseline here is mm-hmm. here is the lowest bar that you have <laughs> to agree to and each one of these things each one of these axioms can be affirmed through simple observation and science here are the axioms the lowest bar that you can agree on to remain within your beloved community mm-hmm. and that's in it in terms of belief yeah. yeah and so if you're if this is something that interests you Definitely go check out the Axioms of Faith mm-hmm. episodes. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm going to make the argument that once I, and I'm still in the process of this, of course, but once I really decided to sit down with doubt, uh, it strengthened my faith because faith is not certainty. Exactly. It, abso- it absolutely is not certainty. That's just not what it is. Exactly. You know, oh, I'm forgetting her name. She's an extraordinary writer, but she wrote uh, an autobiog- an autobiography of Muhammad. No, she wrote yeah. a bi- she wrote a biography of an Muhammad. Autobi- <laughs> <laughs> Even she was channeling him. She she did like that spirit channeling. No, um, and now you've made everyone mad. Anyway, yes, <laughs> yeah, she wrote a biography of Muhammad in which she portrays Muhammad going up the mountain in the fear and trembling with which, with which he did that, where he encountered the angel of Gabriel mm-hmm. and how on the journey home after that vision, he wasn't filled with certainty. Mm-mm. He was filled with terror and doubt, so much so that he almost killed himself. Hmm. Records say that he almost committed suicide because the fear, the terror, the doubt, the questioning of who or what this thing was, it wasn't certain at all for him. Yeah. And she it, she says that that is a great picture of faith. It is actually. Yeah, that is faith. It isn't the cold certainty. I mean, I've heard I have I have actually heard people use that terror and that anguish as evidence that what Muhammad really saw was a demon but i think i have two yeah i think they're not giving the experience of god enough credit like if god has not wrecked your shit then i don't think you've experienced god because god has wrecked my shit he has you know that sort of through the holy spirit experience of god has wrecked my shit yeah me too and again if that's not what you've experienced ah i don't know man and like i think it's one reason why evangelicals 
were in such an uproar over, say, the Noah movie. What yes. makes you think? Just because the biblical account is very sort of mythical in its language and paints in very broad strokes and doesn't give a lot of sort of, you know, narrative character development details, what the crap makes you think that Noah was just fine with all of that? Yeah. Would you be fine with all of that? I hope not. You just watched all your neighbors die. Yeah. Like, what the crap? You know, anyway. so kind of, okay, first of all, Leslie Hazelton. That's the name of the author. Okay. Great, great writer. <laughs> Back to the... She's, she, I, I love her to death. She has a fantastic TED Talk on the nature of faith and on Muhammad, which I highly recommend. Okay, moving on. Anyway. The movie Noah, Danielle and I were huge fans. I know it was oh a really controversial film. I know that a lot of people good. hated it, but we loved it. <laughs> And part of the reason we loved it was it, it was dark. Yeah. And I, you know, Russell Crowe's Noah went through these horrific things and was kind of mentally ill and kind of crazy and it kind of turned into a shining situation. And for people who object to that, I want to look at them and be like, you think the Bible isn't like that? You think that's not what's happening here? You think you think the right? prophets weren't? Weren't like that? <laughs> like that? People who walked around naked for like a period of years? I mean, you because think... Because God told them to? You think Ezekiel... Anyway wasn't a fucking terrifying human being right you think you think isaiah seemed normal to people if you saw anyway. if you saw ezekiel on the street you would be You'd running be like, that's a crazy homeless man you would be running Bye. The, exactly yeah you'd be crazy running homeless man mumbling and shouting nonsense that is that is how that would go down burning his own <laughs> shit yeah burning his own shit yes. and and waxing poetic about horse dicks like Come on now. These men were affected by the spirit of God in a way that, I mean, good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and this kind of gets to one of my pet peeves, which is let's just let the Bible be what it is. Timothy and Matt Langston and I were talking about this, how, you know, when we when we whitewash scripture, when we make it all have to be literal, when we have to see it as... When we sanitize when it. When we sanitize yeah. it and literalize it, I think that that is a low view of scripture. The the gall to do all of these horrific well, things to scripture. It's an incomplete view of scripture. Which, which to me is a low view. Yeah. You know, I yeah. feel like I have a higher view of scripture now because I feel like I simply let it be what it is, which is a fucking messy, complicated, confusing, baffling, gorgeous, and horrifying piece of work that spans... Full of some of the highest highs and the lowest yes. lows in all of the human experience. All like, of heaven. Whoa. All of heaven and hell is contained yeah. within the Bible. Mm -hmm. As the same with religion. I mean, yeah. all of heaven and hell, the worst and the best of humanity is within religion. And also, the Bible is a library written over the span of centuries. It mm -hmm. isn't a single book. And the character of God changes yeah. <laughs> throughout the book. Yeah. There are times when it's almost like, are we writing about the same God? Are we? Yeah. Is this, is this the, the same? And Did that, we? Yeah. And that could be because human perceptions of God were human changed. They changed. Exactly. Anyway. And when we let the Bible be messy, it's terrifying, but we can just kind of relax into it instead of having to fight and fight and fight to make the world and the Bible fit this narrow definition. And that causes yeah, a lot not, of anxiety. I am not about to impose sort of my systematic interpretation on the Bible, which quite frankly is what a lot of people do. And it baffles me that 
I don't know. I Well, and it doesn't also, because here's the thing. I was an English major. I was taught to recognize that all texts are viewed through layers, layers of our own experience, layers mm. of our own, you know, preconceptions, the author's experience and preconceptions. Like, we're always interpreting texts. Yes. And so the Bible is no different because it's a text. text. <laughs> and yes, the Holy Spirit is working, you know, yeah. with it and with us, but we're still humans and it's still a text. Like, this is still true, guys. Yeah. Spoken like a true English major. Spoken like an English major. We are interpreting this text. And that's just it. I cannot impose my systematic interpretation on a text that is so far beyond me, metaphysically and historically and culturally. This thing has been around for thousands of years and been experienced by people and written by people People, you know, so distant from each other in time and space. Like, holy cow, guys, this is this thing is big and yeah. it's bigger than me and it's bigger than I can wrap my head around. Yeah. And I'm OK with that. Exactly. All right. So one last question mm. that we can both answer. Mm -hmm. What has been your favorite book recently? Oh, goodness. That you've read recently. I've actually been reading more recently. Okay, you first. Well, I would have to say it is Michael Pollan's most recent book called How to Change Your Mind, and it's about psychedelics. Mm. It's about the science of psychedelics, the experience of psychedelics, the medical benefits of psychedelics for depression and existential despair, and the recent renaissance in psychedelic research. And it is truly like one of the most fascinating books I've read this year. Like mm. it's it's pretty incredible. Yeah. So I'm audiobooking that one. That's what I've been listening to when I go for a run. Ironically, my favorite book recently has been about neurology as well. Uh, I read Oliver Sacks' The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Uh, Oliver Sacks is brilliant. Oh my gosh, his prose is so amazing. Have you read uh, <laughs> Have you read Musicophilia? No, I should. It's I about really the, should. It's about the interaction mm -hmm. of music and the brain, and that's another yeah. incredible book. No, yeah, no, but The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat is about essentially the vagaries of perception the vagaries of the human brain and what it can do and what sometimes it can't do and just these amazing vignettes both of his own patients and stories that were sent to him from other neurologists about all of these really unexpected conditions and circumstances that arose out of out of their study of neurology mm. and these neurological aberrations and it was poetic and compassionate and fascinating and probing and all of these other things and talk about a man who approaches hmm, who approaches science through mystery yeah he i that's one of the things that i most admired about his writing is that he was okay saying and we don't know why exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. and here is as far as He's... we can as the science can go right now and beyond that we don't know why. No, yeah. I mean, Oliver Sacks was like one of our great poet laureates of science. Oh my gosh. Like he, and, and, you know, he actually recently died yes. several years ago, mm -hmm. uh, which was a real tragedy. A real loss, it yeah. was a true loss. I feel, I feel about his death the same way I feel about Terry Pratchett's death. Oh my like gosh, just, don't even get me started. Just like, oh, oh my God, man. the loss of a modern genius, <sighs> a loss of a modern visionary and prophet. Yeah. Because talk about other favorite books I've recently read. Just Terry Pratchett. Just go read just, Terry Pratchett. Just Terry Pratchett in just general. Just go read him he, he, now. I love 
love Terry Pratchett. And oh, and the man. fact that Terry Pratchett narrated his own death on Twitter. Yeah. Anyway, it, yeah. if you don't know what we're talking about, go anyway. look up Terry Pratchett's death on Twitter. And get ready to sob, And get people. ready to sob. Oh, my um, gosh. Okay, so. Anyway. Well, that's our show for this week. Thank you, Danielle, for joining me. <laughs> for chatting in, in for, your room. For letting yeah. me pull you out of your room. Mm-hmm. Out of panic. Uh, because I was like, I don't have anything. I don't, <laughs> My interview again. <laughs> I don't have anyone to interview. Uh, before we close here, I just have a small request. Please go give a five star review on iTunes. And this is this really is like so helpful because a it it boosts my show. You don't even have to write a review. Just give it five stars or or four stars. <laughs> you know, be honest. Mm-hmm. But but if you can, but if you can, give five stars because here's here's the thing: is a, like a lot of inter- interviewees when I ask them to come onto the show, they just go look at how many reviews I have. That is how I get a lot of my audience and a lot of my guests is it's really it really is based on like how many reviews I've got and so if you enjoy this show and if you listen to it every week and you find yourself looking forward to it every Monday morning (laughs) then please just take a few seconds to to give it five stars and I would so deeply appreciate that also I'm launching my patreon so if you want to support my work financially you can go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford long where you can support this podcast and my my blog. I work, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I work 60 hour weeks, 50 to 60 hour weeks, and I love all of it. I will keep doing it regardless of whether people pay me or not, but it really, really does help a lot. Other ways you can support the show share it with your friends, share it on social media. You can write a blog post responding to it. Also, I love hearing from you. You can reach out to me at Twitter, at Stephen B. Long. You can reach out to me on Facebook. You can uh, also find me at sbradfordlong.com where you can email me and read my dozens of articles on faith, doubt, sexuality, spirituality, so on and so forth. All right. Well, the music is by The Jelly Rocks from the album Bang and Whimper. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify, and the artwork is by Justin Kayla Bryant. And we will see you next week. 